Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for joining. At CIQ, we're focused on powering the next generation of software infrastructure, leveraging the capabilities of cloud, hyperscale, and HPC. From research to the enterprise, our customers rely on us for the ultimate Rocky Linux, Werewolf, and Aptainer support escalation. We provide deep development capabilities and solutions, all delivered in the collaborative spirit of open source. Good afternoon. (laughs) Zane in the house. What's up, man? How's it going? It's going. It is going. It's been a busy day. Yes, it has been a busy day, which is which is good, right? I mean, I'd rather be busy than bored. Oh, absolutely. Yes. For sure. Yes, we're going to go with that. We're going to go with that for sure. Okay, so hi, guys. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. We are super, I I mean, I'm super jazzed. I don't know how jazzed you are to talk about this, but we're talking today about HPC remote work and best practices and, of course, lessons learned. And this is a powerful topic that there is literally nobody better to talk about this than Forrest Burt. So, like, no, no more waiting. You need to bring Forrest on here with us immediately. There he is. Cool. Okay. So Forrest, would you consider yourself an HPC worker? Yes. Okay. And where literally are you right now? Uh, well, okay. With our <laughs> lives into the world. So maybe not literally, but like where, where is your physical self in the space? Uh, at the moment I'm sitting in Boulder, Colorado, uh, in the parking lot of, a like courthouse type place, watching, uh, local sheriff do laps around the parking lot, hoping that we're not about to get a knock on the window here in too awful long. So this is remote working, everybody in HPC. That could actually make it more interesting if you got a knock on the window. (laughs) <laughs> that would be so cool. And then they start, are you with somebody? So like somebody else could like jump in the driver's seat and go if you needed mm-hmm. to? Nope, just me. It's you. Okay. So when you, you say us, the camera talking about me and my car. Oh, yeah. Generally, yeah, I'm talking about yeah, me and the, the rig that I'm in here. <laughs> or me and, you know, the audience, whoever. We're all, we're all, we're all together. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is amazing. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks for being here and for all the amazing work that you do in the HPC world as well. We are so glad to have you. Thank you. Good to be on. Absolutely. So I think I was looking at this from a like a work from home perspective, but John Hanks, Griznog, brought up a fantastic point in the the webinar channel that I hadn't thought of or put in mind. Did you read that for us? I did. I gave that. That was an interesting take that I have not, I mean, truly, when I saw the topic, I was thinking work from home, best practices, things to keep yourself focused, not as much about hardware and where you put it and how much it costs. So that's an interesting take that I want to dive into at some point. But I also want to get into forest and what you're doing and how you're working and how it's working out. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'll just discuss kind of my experience with yes. remote work HPC. Absolutely. Um, so I consider myself essentially a, a professional remote worker. Uh, I have a long history of doing uh, things remote. I went to uh, graduated from online high school, did t- uh, plenty of online classes during the pandemic in college. Uh, when I got out of school, you know, of course, everyone's always looking for these, uh, you know, remote jobs in HBC that are kind of traditionally remote um, and, you know, just in general in kind of the tech sphere. 
um, that are traditionally remote, meaning, you know, they are like essentially a permanently remote position, not something that was, you know, mostly induced due to the pandemic. Um, we here at CIQ are all remote uh, because we have such kind of a diverse group of people at the company that we are geographically spread out over a really, really wide area. And it would be essentially impossible for us to uh, not all work remote. Um, we've got <clears throat> um, quite a few people on kind of, uh, you know, West Coast of the U.S., uh, all kind of across, uh, you know, the Western U.S., Midwest, et cetera, all over the U.S., really. Um, we got a lot of folks there. We've got a lot of folks um, kind of in the European sphere. We've got a few folks in East Asia. Um, so all in all, we're a very global company uh, for having, you know, just about 80 people or so. Um, and so remote work ends up working out very, very well kind of for CIQ. So when I um, got on here, I was really, really pleased to find that uh, remote work was kind of the rule and mostly because uh, like i said we're all geographically isolated not because of any you know outside societal collapse or anything like that um but yeah remote work is great um i really find that the flexibility of it lends very well to these type of um just type of very fast moving uh technical type of positions um it's sometimes a little bit strange to not meet people for very long periods of time in person um, but when you do finally get to meet people in person, it's quite a lot of fun. Um, I remember like at SC last year, about 20 of us, uh, for the most part, hadn't met each other before, all got to kind of finally see each other in 3D. Um, so yeah, remote work uh, is great. It's, like I said, it's sometimes a little strange to just have, you know, everyone in a little box and then to finally be like, oh, these people are actually three-dimensional. Um, but overall, just the kind of flexibility that it gives you to bring together, you know, best of the best from around the world in one company, um, it, it ends up working very well for kind of those contributors. Uh, as far as my part in that, uh, just to mention, I am in my motorhome rolling around, uh, kind of doing a little bit of a, a national parks tour at the moment, uh, driving when I can, and uh, kind of just staying at uh, random, you know, pullouts, RV parks, campsites, stuff like that. Um, so remote work is great. It, it gives really, really high flexibility to be able to, like I said, kind of work when um, you're stopped and uh, be still incredibly consistently productive at that while seeing, you know, all these beautiful things and stuff like that. So I know we have, uh, like I said, a number of other people at the company that kind of, at least a couple others that, you know, move around quite a bit and are, you know, digital nomads. Um, but just in general, uh, remote work works really, really well for our company because we get to bring in, uh, you know, our best of the best from all over. Um, and everyone kind of has the flexibility to um, work best with each other as kind of their schedule and their time zone, et cetera, fits. So Forrest, I will tell you, the first job that I got where I was working remote was in 2006. Mm -hmm. when I went to be a Linux admin and be in consulting. And it was very odd. I met my manager on the first day of, of that job. And he told me, if you don't hear from me, you're doing great. I didn't see him or hear from him for a year. <laughs> came back through. It was a very interesting job. It was fun. But yeah, it, it is. There's a lot you should take into consideration. I know pandemic kind of pushed people into it. But from my perspective and, and working with a lot of people that work remotely, the first thing is you have to know yourself because it is very easy to get distracted at home. And if you don't find that or know that about yourself, you will find out the wrong way um, by not getting things done. So 
for me, when I started, I always thought, oh, it'd be really cool to be able to work and sit in front of the TV at the same time. That that didn't work for me. So I had to find a space very specifically away from I the tried TV. I tried that too. It's oh. not good for your back. It's not good for your no. neck. It's not good for it's your awful. productivity. Like it's powerful. <laughs> so yes, having yes. a space dedicated. You must have your space. It's very important. Yes. Very mm -hmm. important. Yeah. That would be I, my first recommendation. Forest has a great space, by the way. I, thank you, Zane. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Having a dedicated space is really nice. Um, here in this thing, I've got basically just one of my dinette tables set up as the dedicated um, spot. But back at home on the coast, I've got, uh, I kind of had, since I, when I started at CIQ, I had a few different kind of random places that I worked from. Uh, I was uh, living with parents for a little bit there for a second. So I was in like a garden shed out back for a little while. Uh, when I got my place, I was in um, just basically like uh, my guest bedroom for a while, that type of thing. Um, it's nice, you know, especially if you have pets and things like that, to have them around and stuff, but it can also be distracting. So yes, it is, you know, nice to have. And just also for the factor of like, not just for the distraction, but like the separation factor so that you're not, you know, just drawn back to your laptop or to your workstation, you know, all evening because it just so happens to be there and you're, you know, thinking about what you've got on. My home office is a little walk uh, to this like little detached shed that's on the back of my garage. Um, that was essentially a whole bunch of like solvents, uh, like a solvent shed, which is like a bunch of paints, that type of stuff. And when I bought it, um, but I tore all that out, put, you know, like insulation in, wired electricity into it, flooring, all that type of thing. And have like this dedicated office that I can actually walk out uh, and go to during the day which is great for distractions. It's great to, you know, I can go back and, you know, make lunch in my kitchen, but then head back, you know, to my office, which is distraction free. Um, so yeah, the dedicated space is, is very, very um, important, especially if you can make it. So it's not one that you can just kind of naturally wander back to as you, you know, think about work again in the evening or whenever. Yeah, very true. it was like, I think 8pm last night, and I was doing something, I don't know if it like, I don't know if I got a notification. I don't even remember what it was, but I could hear my son like in the background yelling at me. <laughs> Mom, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, I am working. <laughs> so yeah, some, sometimes it's it's helpful again to have the boundary of like, this is work time and the boundary of not work time. Powerful. That was the first thing that I found is it was so easy to continue to work because I wasn't driving somewhere. So you take that two hours of commute out Already, you're looking at 10 hours pretty easy. Then I would mm -hmm. eat lunch at my desk. So you're adding another hour. And then I would just keep going. From a consultative standpoint, it made sense because the more you worked, the more you got paid. So yeah, it worked really well. I could work true. 15, 16 hours a day and it worked out great. But it does burn you out and you have to find a way to walk away. So that was my question to Rose and to Forrest. What do you do to force yourself or how do you force yourself to walk away? Is there anything in particular? Rose, I know this is really a topic that you love so what do you do <laughs> oh you mean like meditation yes yeah meditation <laughs> focusing getting away yeah mental health well, you know you you kind of like touched on it in the beginning like you have to know yourself right and like the way that i like to work might not be the way that other everybody else likes to work as well like for me i didn't know this until i got into it right until i started working remotely and working from home i i thought that i wasn't gonna like it because clearly i'm a chatty 
chatty kind of girl and a people person, you know what I mean? I'm like, la, 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 like all over the place with people. So I really, I was very nervous at first thinking that like my men mentally and emotionally, you know what I mean? Like I just wouldn't, it wouldn't be cool. Like I'd get lonely and weird. Um, I have not found that to be the case at all. Like I know that this kind of communication isn't, you know, quote the best, like I'd rather see you in person and, you know, punch you in your arm if you say something weird, you know, but uh, <laughs> that would just be constant. Here. Come on. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, <laughs> but I have actually found that I like the freedom and the flexibility to do different things during the day. Like I, again, everyone's a little bit different. Like I do not have the ability to focus for, you know, three, four, five, six hours in a row. Right. Like to me having the, the breakup and then coming back and focusing for a half hour, an hour, and then having 10 minutes where I go do something else. That to me is a thousand times worth, you know, sending some emails, especially because we are like across the world. So to me, I don't mind sending an email or doing something at 8 p.m. because I've had like the space all day to not get burnt out, right? So like I never feel like, oh my God, I, I just, I need a drink and watch TV like by the end of the day because like all day long, I've been taking care of myself little by little. And for me, that is like the perfect way to work. I'd, I'd much rather have the longer hours, but it like spread out in between. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will do a little plug there for some meditation practices and eating well, like it does make a difference, right? Like going to bed on time at a regular time and getting sleep and staying hydrated. And, um, you know, I do, I, I love meditation, guided meditations. They're just, you know, just like 10, 15 minutes a day. I usually do one at around three in the afternoon. So if you see me not um, online at that time for about 15 minutes. That's why Rose is meditating. Um, and it is, it does. It helps kind of, it's kind of like having an afternoon cup of coffee. It's very similar, right? Where you get to reboot the mind and reboot the self for like, a, you know, to continue on. So yeah, that's, that's my strategies. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, as far as I go, I just kind of make sure that I've got, you know, hobbies around me and passions and things like that that I'm working on, different projects, and that I'm just kind of in general keeping busy. Um, at the moment, you know, obviously my big project has been rolling around because I've gotten like, I think I just ticked over 5,000 miles in six weeks or so. Um, and so, you know, it's just all about keeping yourself busy and just making sure that you're, you know, using the flexibility uh, to your advantage and, you know, enjoying yourself along the way, to be frank. Uh, it's, um, I have always been someone who kind of, you know, it's only been recently that I've started to learn a little bit more to, um, you know, uh, make sure to detach a little bit more and not just be, you know, kind of in, you know, the grind set all the time. Uh, the grind I love it. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, I, the biggest thing for me is just making sure that I've got projects and uh, passions and stuff like that that are fed by the flexibility and freedom that I have um, in this. That, you know, it, it's an incredible, uh, really, it's quite incredible working remote and stuff like that. I've got, you know, Starlink and things like that. So I was just joining everyone from like almost 12,000 feet on top of like America's highest paved road the other day. Um, and so it's, uh, it just comes down to making sure that, you know, even with stuff like that, even if you're not 
um, you know, necessarily detaching from work, just using kind of the remote aspect of it to make it novel and to keep things fresh, uh, you know, like that. I mean, what, what can be, you know, working from, you know, the highest paved road in North America, that type of thing is just like the fact that we even have the technology and capacity to do that is, um, is amazing. So yeah, I'm just making sure that, you know, both, you know, entirely personally and just kind of in the context of where you're working from, that type of thing that, um, you know, you take advantage of all the benefits of remote work. So I'm going to blow your mind for us. When I started working remote, first of all, it was difficult to get connectivity if you weren't at a physical place. So that was fun. Mm -hmm. And having, having DSL with one megabit was amazing. Like at home, mm -hmm. amazing. First time I when I took that job, I got a Blackberry. And you could actually tether your laptop to your BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. It was really cool. That was fun. And then we actually got PCM CIA cards that were cellular that were 3G. You could just slide in the side of your laptop and work. That's moving. Really cool. It's the greatest thing ever. So great. Now you have Starlink. You can do this live. It's a very different world. And not that long ago. Mm -hmm. I'm just on a, on a hot spot right now. But um, yeah, that's incredible to have been able to have seen that transition. Because it's... You know, the remote work thing is, is so much of it is fed by that ability to just be connected anywhere, whether it's through a hotspot or like satellite internet or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that must have been incredible to have seen that switch over. It, it was fun. It's fun to be able to work more. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, right, cool. I'm curious, for those of you watching, how do you guys deal with this? What are you doing to work from home? What makes it better? What are the kind of the standards you set for yourself? Or do you see other people doing or not doing well? Um, I think going back to knowing yourself was the one thing I've seen cause the most problem for people, not having a space. Um, so yeah, love to have your feedback before we dive into John's topic, because that, that one to me is interesting. I had not thought of it in that way. So throw some stuff out there. I know Art asked, what are you doing about connectivity for us? I think you kind of dove into that. So outside of just being tethered to something or using a hotspot, well, you mentioned a really cool technology that I think a lot of people are curious about. Not everybody can get. Which one? Maybe like, they can now. Which Just one? Starlink. <laughs> Starlink. Or yeah. has a list of cool yeah. things. <laughs> um, yeah, connectivity. Oh, yeah, as far as like, you know, like the link and that type of thing goes, uh, it that's what you were talking about, right, Zane? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, there's, you know, all, you know, the usual kind of sphere of complaints about muskmelon and his operation you know all aside that people tend to have i'm extremely pleased with how well the technology works um i've got like a backpack from them as well that i can put like the dish and the cable and everything like that into so that when i go haul it up on the roof like one time like the first time i ever took this thing out i you know three hand climbed the ladder with the you know antenna pole in the other hand i did that once up, once down, and never did that again. You know, I, I ain't afraid to get up on a ladder, but there are certain things that you know you just—I'm uh, not going to chance with how many times I'm up and down. So I got you know like a backpack from them that you can fit everything into. So I can just put that on, hop up on the roof, deploy the Starlink. I uh, probably look fairly amusing hiking back down the ladder with the big old pack with like this cable trailing out of it i imagine it looks vaguely like like a spacesuit almost with like the tether going back to the space station um i just run the cable <clears throat> back up through like the little battery compartment which has got a hole in the bottom of it um and just back up uh, through like this little lid that's underneath my step that you access those through 
um, right back up into the router. Uh, power has been a little bit challenging uh, just because I found that, you know, my, my totally waterproof, whatever nature can throw at it, solar panel died on me with the first rain in Gardner, Montana, outside of Yellowstone. Um, <laughs> my outlets don't work uh, without shore power or genset power, and I need that for the Starlink. Um, so I've been using like the Verizon hotspot. That's actually what I'm on right now, and it works really, really well. Um, I use that as kind of a stopgap uh, if I don't want to go deploy the like the Starlink up or something like that. Uh, but yeah, overall, I, my speed that I usually get is like 150 megabits per second down. Uh, seriously, and then that's like 10 fantastic. megabits. It's no, just ridiculous. Yeah. It's and that's from anywhere. I mean, I was in the middle of Yellowstone. Um, with just kind of a vague northern, you, you need mostly a northern sky view with a, with only just like a vague one of those. And uh, I was able to get it set up with just few enough obstructions that it, uh, I mean, I was on, you know, my calls weren't dropping. I wasn't having any issues. It was, it was fairly impressive. So yeah, the Starlink is, is pretty incredible technology. So far I've remote worked from uh, Glacier, Yellowstone, Grand Teton and Rocky Mountain National Parks on it. Um, and I mean, it, as long as you've got a view of the sky and power for it, you can basically take that thing anywhere and uh, go pitch it up on the roof. So it's, it is definitely the way to go for people out on the road. People ask me about it all the time. Like I'll be up there putting it up and people will, oh, what's that antenna for? What type of speed do you get off of that? that type of thing. So I, um, I highly recommend that for fellow remote workers as a solution. That's fantastic. We just some comments here. Dave Godlove, thanks for watching, man. So before working from home became mainstream, people used to be jealous and tell me I was lucky to work from home. I used to spin it around and ask how they would like to live at work. <laughs> That's a very good point. It's a very good point. You never, you never leave. <laughs> and that's why people end up working far more. I mean, I know a lot of people who will work 15, 16 hours a day because they work from home. So there's that interesting separation. I know Dave was doing that too. Arthur Tide. Hey, man. Would you say all in that it's more or less expensive to be mobile as compared to being stationary? Mm. More or less expensive, yeah. Digital nomading is a very interesting life. Um, I... Wait, is this, this a, is this an official term? Did you just make that up or is that is that a thing? Digital nomad is a thing. You can go, yeah, you can Google that one and that you'll find some other folks around and about. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's what they call it, digital nomad type stuff. Um, overall, I would say it kind of just depends upon how you're doing it. Um, you know, when you're stationary, uh, I'm going to take this from two angles. If you're stationary, you know, renting something like that, like you're not moving digital nomad life, you know, that's kind of a crapshoot. It depends upon, you know, how, kind of, uh, Are you living in Manhattan? Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that type of thing. Um, as far as like, in my experience, um, this is pretty inexpensive living overall. Um, being, it's certainly not much more, uh, expensive than being stationary. It mostly just kind of comes down to how you're actually doing it. Like, uh, like I said, I have a class C motor home about 26 feet long, uh, 10 foot high, actually 11 foot high and about eight feet long. 
So I have, you know, certain spaces that I can fit into, certain spaces that I can't. Um, you know, I have to manage water, you know, tanks, all that type of thing. Um, so I have certain amenities that I have to find out on the route. Um, RV parks and things like that, if you're staying at those, are very expensive. Um, and if you're going to stay at those for, say, like a whole month, you'd be paying, you know, like Manhattan type rent overall, like just in general, because it's usually like 80 to 150 bucks a night for that type of thing. Um, so overall, you're going to end up with like Manhattan style rent if you're staying at like RV parks all the time. But if you're doing like what I've been doing, which is a lot of just like boondocking, dry camping at like uh, National Park Service campgrounds or wherever, uh, I've, like I said, been boondocking a lot. So just like <clears throat> driving up random forest service roads and parking for the night and just sleeping there, um, pullouts along highways, rest stops. Sorry, my Slack is distracting me. Um, you know, pull-outs along highways, rest stops, all that type of thing. Um, now they've moved how you can... Oh, yeah, they read it all. It's like... It's it's different. Slack. Okay, well, I'll have to that. get that in just a second. Never mind. Apologies, everyone. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, I, I've been doing a lot of just, like, staying in random places, dry camping, um, and that is really inexpensive overall. Um, if you were to just, like just kind of like what I've been doing, just like I said, sleep at pullouts, rest stops, that type of thing. It, it's fairly affordable overall. Uh, the most expensive expense is gas uh, because this motor, uh, uh, you know, 12,000, <laughs> 13,000 gross vehicle weight operates best with, you know, 91 octane. Uh, so it tends to, you know, that, like you know, I've been, you know, I've, I've climbed from here to sea level, basically like five or six or from uh, like 8,000 feet to sea level a couple of times by now um kind of in total uh so overall like i said the biggest expense uh turns out to be like fuel um but if you're as far as like where you're staying at you can keep that pretty cheap with just like um rest stops campsites that type of thing it does get tiring after a while constantly kind of moving around and always trying to have to find somewhere um but overall it's uh it's definitely not uh, like a much more massive expense compared to being stationary. It's interesting because I know working from home saved me a fortune on gas and toll fees between two people. It is, it's like getting a raise. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So beyond that, now let's talk about what Chris Nog brought up. And from a perspective, I hadn't thought about it. So, so John brought up having hardware in a colo and not, not necessarily working from home, but working remote from where the HPC infrastructure is. And the, the things that you don't think about of the cost that you could pay a vendor for a CAN solution and the support and smart hands that they provide versus architecting something that could deal with some failures and having a regular routine of someone actually traveling there and actually replacing the disk. So having it notify or maybe not notify. And I think that was part of the problem is it not necessarily knowing when things fail, but having a routine of when somebody goes and takes care of that and the other things that they can accomplish as well to kind of drive that cost down. And I was curious your thoughts on that for us since you've dealt with HPC and being remote. Um, I was just parsing everything that John Hanks had said there. Uh, could you just one more time say in the question? Yeah. So, I mean, from his perspective, having paid a vendor a lot of money for a very, I mean, a, a full solution, but they provided the smart hands and everything else. And the amount of time that mm -hmm. it took to deal with a vendor, get on calls, 
work with them to actually get things replaced, waiting for parts, all of that type of work, does it really make sense to pay that higher premium in some cases versus building it yourself, having a lower cost for a physical piece of infrastructure and having someone go out and check on it every now and then? Can can you save money that way? And it's a really interesting, and obviously it worked for him both ways, but there is a benefit to paying attention to how much it would cost to build it yourself and then mm-hmm. do your own care and feeding. And I think it's something that most people don't think about. They just look at it as, I'm going to buy this expensive thing because it comes with smart hands and support. And it's probably just going to be better for me in the long run. It may not be the case. And I just hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. One example that comes to my mind was a cluster that we built out at uh, the Idaho National Lab when I was working for Boise State prior to CIQ. Uh, that was like a 300 mile drive from us, the site that our supercomputer was at. We were in Boise. You had to take the 84, like clear out to their complex, usually had to stay in a hotel. I think when they were putting together one of it, um, our chief admin had spent like over a hundred days, one year out in that area. Um, I think I don't, I think that was on that supercomputer, but that might've been on different business overall. Um, but just in general, we kind of had a situation like this where we had a site that we had to put a supercomputer that was very, very isolated from us. And it took you know basically a day's drive to get there. Uh, and what we found was that it was more economical for us to um, have the vendor rack and stack the entire system and have them come out. Um, <laughs> the most amusing issues we had with that were them sending stuff to like our procurement at university and stuff, you know, screwed up our addressing. And we ended up with components showing up at like central receiving at the university that then had to be like forwarded on 300 miles to the data center site. Uh, In another instance, they sent a whole bunch of stuff all individually packaged in boxes. And there were like 500 boxes that showed up out at the data center site. And they're like, what are we supposed to do with all these? Like they individually packaged everything basically. Um, but we found overall in the end that ended up being more economical. Uh, we to actually go out there and put that whole system together ourselves. Uh, we definitely could have done it between the three or four of us that we had. Um, but to actually go out there, do all that, take away all the user support time, uh, basically put all of us on a completely different assignment for at least a week um, was just kind of almost like a downtime period that we couldn't really afford. Uh, and so we ultimately in the end had the integrator put the, or the like vendor and everything, put the whole thing together, rack and stack it. Um, we didn't end up having them manage it at all because it was at a site where we were um, already kind of, you know, expecting to manage it. Like I said, it was at a national lab site. Uh, so in the end, we kind of had considerations that led to us, you know, managing it ourselves just because at that point it was easier to get uh, one of our people out there with access uh, to that site and it would be like one of the the support people from the company am i dropping out can you guys hear me nope you're good okay good um uh to actually have had to have gone and like remotely tried to walk somebody through the troubleshooting that we needed to do we definitely could have done it um but we just preferred to be hands-on except for the initial install of the whole thing this team we'd uh they'd rack and stacked clusters before etc um, it just wasn't, it wasn't necessary for us to put the whole thing together in the first place. Once we had like the diagrams and all that stuff, we were able to support it. Um, <clears throat> so overall, uh, my experience with this in the end, we went out there a couple of different times, um, to do maintenance on it. We worked great as a team, got the thing fixed, uh, 
and in the end it was more worth it for us to just kind of pay to take the monotony out of the initial setup uh, than it was in the end to deal with our highly specialized system um, trying to you know kind of third party support it you know walking somebody through what we wanted to have them look at it like smart hands type thing um i don't i can't speak to like all the specific like the numbers of the costing and everything like that uh because i wasn't terribly privy to it at the time um you know like the full economic models and stuff that they were looking at oh but i do know there were a lot of external benefits that uh ended up like i said playing out really well for us when it was us able to actually go out there and um you know, make the drive when we had to. And we didn't have to go out there very often. Uh, we had, you know, kind of a few folks out there that could like kind of help us with certain remote tasks. Like, you know, the I, you know, I will admit like the drive example, we had someone who could have slid a drive out and put a new one back in out there if we wanted, because we had like lab researchers and stuff also using this resource. So we had people over there that were involved in managing it. Um, but for the most part, it was, uh, we only had to go out to the site just like, you know, once or twice a year to do maintenance once everything was all said and done. There was, like I said, quite a while that um, one of us had to spend out there kind of, I, I thought that was on a past engagement though. Uh, but I know that once, once, like I said, we had the whole thing set up, we only had to go out there um, every once in a while. So you can kind of have a happy medium. If you've got, you know, competent people that it doesn't cost you a ton to have, uh, that can do like just small things like slipping a new disc in, uh, that's very useful, but there's a lot of benefits to, um, you know, ultimately just costing out and having your own team go out there, work on it, implement their own fixes, uh, that type of thing. So I had worked with one customer that their vendors would not do anything unless one of us from the support was on site with them. So it didn't make any sense for them to do that, but then they wouldn't support it if they didn't actually put the drive in. So we had to do all the work to prepare the machine, to take it out of the array, to give them the disc to pull out and then to, uh, Gary pointed out making sure that the, the lights are the right color and not not having a failed drive have the same color light as an active drive. So we actually did that a couple of times. We would have the vendor pull out the wrong drive after you had taken something else out of the array. So I agree with you. It's if you got to be there anyways, might as well do it yourself. Uh, but I can't tell you how many times we would walk through the data center after that down the other rows because we had probably 80 rows worth of gear and just start taking notes of hardware lights that were on and just having to open ticket after ticket to bring people out. And then we just come meet them for every one of those. So there's definitely a, there's definitely a happy medium and a cost of we could have just done this ourselves versus pay somebody for the very expensive infrastructure that we're going to be there to take care of anyway. So again, I hadn't thought of it like this, but it is something that should take into consideration. How much are you willing to spend for someone else to do it versus how much are you going to have to do it anyway? If you got to be there, you might as well just do it. Very interesting perspective. Really is. Rose, do you have any thoughts? I was just thinking about the variety of people that, uh, you know, reach out to us as someone well, you know, as a company well known in the HPC world <clears throat> for a variety of different um 
I don't know what, what the word is, uh, services, right? <laughs> Products, services, um, everywhere from, hey, build this cluster for us. I mean, just like the, the, the software and or tell us what to do, right? So we've done that several times mm -hmm. where they are the hands on, they're doing stuff and we're telling them what to do and what to unplug and plug together and, you know, that kind of thing. And then we are kind of like, you know, creating the flow internally with the software and the, the different programs. Um, and so that that's one model. And then, you know, several people have reached out and said, you know, we're like, we're not going to have this, you know, sys admin person anymore. Like, can you guys just do it? <laughs> you know? And so there's an interesting balance of like, you know, people on the ground, hands on, because there still is hardware to manage and to deal with. And then like who is actually running the systems and, and caring for it. Um, so yeah, I guess I, in my mind, I'm just thinking about what the difference is there. And as, as you guys are talking, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of coming to, to grips that there are specialists who deal with just one or the other. And then there are people who can really do both. Um, and so Forrest, you're obviously a person who can do both, but I'm not going to tell anybody that that's going to be our little secret because you're not allowed to ever leave. I'm just yes. throwing that out there. Okay, good. It's <laughs> interesting thing. Forrest and I have talked about this quite a quite a lot is it's really hard to find HPC people right now. It's really hard. There just aren't a lot of them out there. And that's one of the things that to Rose's point, people have been asking us to come in and help to build the clusters because there just aren't enough. So if you're interested in HPC, you should definitely take a look. It's a great place to be. Forrest, yeah. chime in on this. I know you and I've talked about this a lot and we would love to see more universities with specific courses around getting people into HPC administration. Yeah, it's uh, HPC is a really, really specialized type, you know, of technology as opposed to, uh, let me back up. It's a really specialized piece of technology, but the other interesting thing about it is just how disproportionate the number of people in it are relative to like the size of deployments they're usually managing. What you find in HPC countless, countless, countless times over and over and over again, at, you know, for example, universities, uh, is that the entire HPC team that's managing this huge cluster that has usually dozens, hundreds of nodes in it, uh, you know, with probably, I know we, uh, we were not like a massive HPC shop at Boise State, but we did have a, a fairly decent user base at about 500 people or so on our cluster, uh, just kind of in total. Um, so I've lost my train of thought. Uh, there's a disparity between like the number yeah, of admins yeah. and yes, what they're, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a huge disparity between that. You know, you look at, like I said, universities, it's usually a very small team that's managing a very large amount of resources for a very large number of users. Um, you look at, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, like national lab spheres, it's usually a small team of people that are there on the cluster. You look at like private enterprise, once again, it's usually a small group of very specialized HPC people. Um, that are managing the entire infrastructure. HPC ends up with like GPUs, MPI, stuff like that. A lot of it is stuff that people are just never exposed to in you know a tech degree or in technology. It really goes in depth um, into like systems level stuff, you know, like I said, with MPI and all that. Um, so it really, it just ends up being just in general for one a difficult place to get into just because not a lot of people even know that it exists i got into hpc because um i was always kind of interested in supercomputers i found out the university had one i emailed the research computing team was like do you have any 
positions available for students and they happened to have just posted one and so i got the job and i but i was the only student in the whole thing um you know budgets were tight it always is kind of you know um hpc you find is generally a little underfunded by it departments at places um so it was just me i mean i was the only student while i was there we had a few other admins um so just in general not only is it um there's a huge need for people just in general kind of finding out that it even exists in the first place and you know getting into that type of thing can be difficult um i know that uh one problem universities have is that they um a lot of the time lose their people upon graduation or a couple of years afterwards or so to private enterprise um because private enterprise has a lot uh more like remote work opportunities salaries are usually higher etc um so specifically they have a lot of problems in that just because of the nature of uh, you know especially like public funding and that type of thing um but uh just in general um if you know that hpc exists there are resources out there i wish i had alan sills website handy if it's still active where they have like all the HPC jobs aggregated. Um, but it's really, uh, isn't know. he working on a, a, like, like a, a pathway I'll say for, for people to kind of jump in knowing that they want to go into the HPC as, as a, as a profession, because almost every single HPC professional that I have met is like, Oh, I know it was weird. I just landed here. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. I'm trying to find it for you real quick. Like, it's kind of like a need, right? Like, there, there's like a little vortex that opens up and it kind of just like sucks whoever, you know, sucks you in, whoever. Oh, whoever and it's, that's so true, Rose. You know, that, uh, especially in academia, there's, I couldn't tell you how many clusters out there are sitting in a closet at, you know, the engineering building at whatever university that some grad student ended up, you know, being the one that got handed the cluster by accident usually an accident on their part <laughs> and uh, they're the ones that manage it. And, I, and seriously, there are a number of really, really competent HPC admins that just like that, just the research group needed someone to manage the HPC cluster. I stepped up, I was voluntold, whatever. And uh, they end up eventually ending up in, uh, in HPC. And a lot of times these are uh, like domain scientists, for example, um, that end up kind of joining us in this world. Uh, and on kind of the opposite thing, a lot of us are like, you know, one eighth, one quarter or so domain scientists ourselves just by like the sheer virtue of like all the different softwares, sciences, et cetera, that HPC supports. Um, so it's really, if you like learning new things, if you like kind of constantly having interesting, you know, new challenges and stuff, HPC is, uh, especially right now with containers and orchestration, um, and especially with what we're doing here at CIQ around HPC and kind of our different software stacks and automation stacks and, um, you know, uniting enterprise and high performance computing, there has almost never been a better time to get into HPC. Um, like I said, everybody needs HPC. So if you're in the know that everyone needs HPC, um, it's definitely something that uh, there is probably some willingness to help you pivot into there. Lots of fine. willingness. Yes, I did find Alan's site, the hpc.social. Cool, cool. Awesome. So posted yeah. that out there. There's there's a whole jobs link board. It's There's a lot on there. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll definitely post that. And it actually kind of brings up another um, 
topic here about interns and internships. And I know that, I, I mean, that probably, you know, projects and jobs that hpc.social is going to talk a lot about that. I know that it's a, a little bit challenging for us. We've had a lot of really, you know, smart, um, curious, like really wanting to do it people. And they're like, are you guys, you know, accepting interns? And we're like, well, not really. We really want to, but I don't know. We're not quite there yet. That it is, it's, it's quite, um, it's quite a lot, right. To really teach somebody what you have learned. Like what, what is kind of your, your thoughts around that? forest. I mean, as someone who's kind of, you know, you know, you have like both perspectives, right? Like you were that curious student who just jumped in mm -hmm. and now it's like, I'm sure that you get it all the time too. Like, dude, forest, it's awesome. I want to work on your stuff. Like, are you guys hiring? Do you take an intern? Like, can I shadow you? Um, like what's kind of your, your perspective on best next steps for people or like some of the challenges that you've seen? Um, the best next steps are honestly just get involved with HPC. If we're not looking for interns, you know, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, there are definitely a lot of places that are, like I said, I got my start in HPC just by literally emailing the campus research computing team saying, I'm super interested in HPC. I'm really like looking for a job in it. Um, and that was, you know, kind of an internship type thing overall. Sometimes I was referred to as intern, etc. Sometimes, you know, that kind of basically is you know, kind of the gist of what that was. Um, so overall, you know, for people looking to, <laughs> I remember I was at uh, the Rocky Mountain Advanced Computing Consortium a couple of weeks after I graduated. And I asked this question of kind of like the uh, early career panel, you know, what what, what uh, advice do you have for new grads in the market right now in HPC? And the gal basically said back, you know, stay positive and keep trying. <laughs> it's just in general, tech is it can be a huge pain to like look for jobs and stuff in it. There's a lot of, you know, like cruft and grifting out there online. You can find of people, you know, I've applied to 500 jobs and, you know, people talking on Reddit and stuff like that. Yeah. I generally find if you're especially like early career looking to get into this, don't let that type of thing discourage you. Don't let requirements on jobs discourage you. The position I had here, um, they said they wanted like someone to new C, Fortran, all that type of stuff. I knew nothing about Fortran, but I called them and was like, hey, I, I don't know anything about this stuff, but I'm, you know, interested in this. I'm doing this class, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how much on the job training are you guys willing to provide? And they're like, well, it's, you know, that's what the whole job is about. So come on in. Um, so ultimately it just comes down to showing that you've got passion and you've got interest in the actual underlying technology. I love just seeing big supercomputers run, like just for the sake of watching like huge architecture work on something. So it ultimately just comes down to, you know, working that passion and finding uh, a place that is willing to mentor you, uh, uh, finding places and people that are willing to mentor you tangibly. Like for example, the chief sysadmin worked with before this, who taught me most of what I knew about HPC at that time, because it was just her and I working on things for a long time. Uh, so overall, yeah, if you're looking to get into HPC, reach out to the research computing department, uh, look for, you know, projects that are in kind of engineering spaces that might need, you know, a computational specialist to join on with them. Uh, you know, if you're graduating and you're just out of school, like I said, look for, um, just, I mean, there's all, you know, the big companies are all looking for interesting different types of people around HPC, even just not like sysadmins. 
um, which is how I got my start. But at this point, you know, I work as like a solutions architect. So even like all that different type of stuff that you might not find under, you know, the query high performance computing, but it's still ultimately, you know, like you know, uh, building out demos with AI, at, you know, uh, you know, X big chip manufacturer or something like that. Um, a lot of that, a lot of those kind of tangibly related positions are also going to get you really close to HPC and get you great experience. Um, so overall, just keep your chin up. And uh, I would just say, um, like I said, find those places that are willing to give you the chance and that have a need for um, fresh talent and passion. I like that. Fresh talent and passion. Oh, hey, Arthur. Did CIQ wrap your rig? <laughs> you know, gas for PR. <laughs> I, I am definitely open to corporate sponsorships. If, uh, if that is hilarious. Is, uh, <laughs> Good idea. On the side, it's like <laughs> werewolf, ascender, uh, actainer, and rocky. At the very least, people would know that this is not like a cruise America <laughs> once we, with all that at the very least people would uh, be able to be sure that this is not a rental as people it's true get kind of crazy out on the roads there a lot of people are driven mad by the mere sight of the cruise Americas out in road border <laughs> America these days um, so yeah but I'm, I'm definitely open to corporate sponsorships like I said uh, 91 non-ethanol is is not cheap these it's days. not cheap <laughs> That's awesome. if you can find it all right. Well, if our boss is watching, yeah. you heard it here first. Um, so another thing that I all am always telling people is to jump into the open source communities. I mean, you know, quite frankly, HPC is just kind of like a hodgepodge of a million different open source projects. Yep. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. um, you know, we support four of them now. So we've got Werewolf, we've got uh, Rocky, um, Aptainer and Ascender. And so all of the that information and of course then the links to get involved with the um, open source projects, you know, and there's a variety of different ways. Sometimes there's on slow and also on um, open Ella. I'm going with Ella. I'm just going with it. I know you all like ELA, but you know, it's my world here. So we know what you mean. That works. <laughs> we know what you mean. We know what you mean. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's easy and really beneficial to jump into those communication, uh, those communities. I mean, there's all kinds of documentation and guidance. There's meetups, there's, um, you know, the Slack channel and the Mattermost. And there's all these different ways in which people are getting together and talking about problems and solutions and, and, and asking for help, right? I mean, if you really want to, like, get noticed, you, you know... <laughs> volunteer to write some documentation for any open source project and you yes. will be the star for sure. And it's a great way to learn. I mean, if you're trying to write about it and you're having to learn it at the same time, it, it's a great way to learn. It's also a great way to learn is to go try to solve somebody else's problem. I mean, dig in, even if you can't, at least you get to see the guts and see how it's put together. It's a fantastic way to get involved. Right. Exactly. Because just kind of like thinking about it and like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. is very different than like actually having a goal, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to do this for this reason. And then like the motivation and the energy and the solutions just, you know, will, will unfold for you. Awesome. That was really fun, you guys. So we're going to be here next week, same time, same place. We are always talking about cool stuff. Thank you for being remote. Thank you for working with us. Thank you for sharing your journey with us and being an amazing HPC um, professional for us. So thanks for being here, man.
appreciate Thank it. You, Glad to be on. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks for joining us from the middle of nowhere. We appreciate middle it. Middle of nowhere. So make sure you like and subscribe and tune in next week and go to CIQ.com. We are happy to chat with you and answer any questions that you might have. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone.